Our sponsors, Bison Beer, are doing drinks breaks seven days a week at their beach bar at Sea Lanes. Located between the Palace Pier and Marina, it's the perfect place for a socially distanced pint of beer beside the seaside. Head down there and kick back in a deck chair until next season and let them know you're fans of Football, the Albion and me for 10% off your drinks. This is Football, the Albion and me with Richard Newman. Hello, welcome to episode 21 of Football, the Albion and Me. I'm Richard Newman. This is the penultimate episode of series one before we take a very short break. There will be specials throughout that gap though. If you're new to the podcast, we interview Brighton and Hove Albion players and coaches from throughout the decades, get to know them a bit better off the pitch and ask each guest to select a five-a-side team made up of the best they've played with. Now, before we get started, this is going out ahead of the 2020-21 Premier League season and we've jumped on the Fantasy Premier League bandwagon. Join our league with the code NPQH25. It's in the podcast description too. And the winner will have a chance to talk about their experiences supporting Brighton in a future Football, the Albion and Me extra time. My guest this week is former Brighton and England defender Matthew Upson, who spent a season and a half at Albion from 2013 to 2014. We recorded this interview in August 2020, so if you're listening long after that, skip forward five minutes into the interview as we preview the 2021 season first. But after that, Matt talked about how his time at Albion were some of the happiest of his career, how he wanted to stay if they'd been promoted to the Premier League, and reveals what it was really like inside Fabio Capello's England camp at the World Cup in 2010. Enjoy. Follow Football, The Albion and me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for coming on the, the podcast, Matt. We're going to get stuck into the format that we're more familiar with for the podcast shortly. But first, it'd be good to just to talk about the, um, the new Premier League season. And we'll start with Brighton. I know you've been a pundit on Albion Games last season. How do you view them at the start of a new campaign now that Graham Potter's had a, a year under his belt? I think it's going to be very interesting to see Brighton, if I'm honest. Um, there's been a lot of change, hasn't there, really, in the last season? And I think it's very difficult to implement that kind of change um, that Graham Potter's tried to do in the Premier League because the competition's so fierce that at times you you almost have to try and sometimes fall back on what's just going to get you the, the result that you need. Um and I felt that, that Chris Shooting was pretty good at that and, and, and survived really well with Brighton. But with the, the different style and the, the progression that the club wants to have, I think that second season can, can be t- quite tricky. So I think they've had a year to, to adapt to the new manager and what he wants, his demands, which is helpful. Um, but on the flip side of that, you know, it, it's another level of implementing those plans. And it'd be interesting to see you know, how far Graham Potter goes with that because in terms of possession of the ball and, and football style, this it's been pretty pleasant to watch from Brighton, if I'm honest. A big statement would be the, the signing of Adam Alana to try and take that a step forward. Yeah. That, was a, that, that was a big statement signing, wasn't it? Did it sort of catch you off guard? No, it, it didn't because I think Brighton's a really attractive club to play for, um, for for many different reasons. But for somebody like Adam Lallana, given the the past couple of seasons that he's had have been very tough. You know, the injury problems that he's had and, uh, you know, availability of, of matches for him hasn't been been great. So to come to a club like Brighton in, in the transition that he's in, in the almost exciting uh, future, you feel the club's progressing in a positive direction. Um, I think it's a really sensible move all around and it's, it's a really good move for him individually too. 
Mm. And as, as another defender, pretty crucial that Lewis Dunk stayed. He signed a new long-term contract. Are you almost a bit surprised that he hasn't got his big move? A little bit. A little bit, I have to say. Um, you know, I think there's, there's still time for that with, with, with Dunkey, but he's very happy at Brighton as, as it shows. Um, and almost for him, I kind of, I kind of guess it boils down to why, why would you leave the club, you know, his boyhood club at, at the moment? And I'm sure his affiliation to Brighton has, has come into that decision-making mm. um, given all the, the talk and, and how well he's done and, you know, forged himself into the England squad a few times and been part of those plans. So, you know, there's definitely progressions that, that he can still make at Brighton. But you feel that that, you know, that next step for him and his kind of personal goals of his career may be to, to step up to that next level of, of club in the Premier League at the moment. And you know, there's, there's still time for that. You play with him. How much do you rate Lewis and, and how unlucky is he that he hasn't had more chances with England? Well, he, he's matured so much since, since I played with him. And, you know, I, I remember coming to, to Brighton and he was almost, you know, he, the managerial team always knew the talent he had. But in terms of his, his maturity and discipline, um, he wasn't there as a young player. And I think, you know, he'll, he'll probably be the first to admit that. And I know they had to work hard to get him as fit as what he needed to be and, and what have you. But his talent with the ball and, and just natural defensive, defending qualities was, was obvious to see. So it was always going to be a matter of time with him and as to whether or not he could kind of pick up that, that, that level of discipline and professionalism and... and um, apply himself week in week out every training session to, to be his best and that is something that comes with with time if I'm honest and, and experience and he's now had that and he's he's proven and showing the the quality of player that he really can be so you know all credit to him and all credit to to Brighton for, for nurturing that talent really. So looking ahead to the season where do you think Brighton are, are going to finish in the table what would be your guess? I, I would say that Anything around mid-table for, for Brighton in the Premier League at the moment would be a really positive season. You know, I think that, that the level of competition out there at the moment and the intense focus on the Premier League, it's incredibly competitive. So anything around that, that level. And, and I, I don't like to describe it as staying up. You know, you say just survival. I think that, I don't think that's a, a positive way to look at it. I think... Obviously, for the club to stay in the Premier League is number one objective. But I think to, to target a, a mid-table, anything around that area would, would be you know, a really positive season for Brighton. You know, put that together yeah. with a cup run would be, would be brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Right, let's get stuck into the main podcast. And it's always good to get some context. So let's take you right back. What was life like in the Upson household for the young Matt? It was relatively uh, normal, if I, if I dare use that word. Kind of run-of-the-mill uh, family with of two children a brother and a sister I had an older sister by two years um, and I grew up basically opposite the local football club in a small market town in Norfolk called Dis mm-hmm. um, that's that, there were those were the, the beginnings um, and right from the off it was football on the brain if I'm honest or in the blood or whatever it may be um, and it was it was the most dominant thing in my life uh, Right from very early on, my dad was strongly affiliated to the local football club, this town football club, um, as a player, 
literally everything, done everything in his time there from playing, cutting the grass, managing the team, club secretary, the, the whole lot. So, uh, yeah, he, he's known as almost Mr. Distown Football Club. Right. So, uh, you know, I had a lot of opportunity to play football. Let's put yeah. it that way. I could go across there, play on the grass, you know, plenty of space to, to be able to play. And, and that's what I did for the majority of my spare time. Mm. So who did you grow up supporting? I grew up supporting Norwich mm. because my granddad was a season ticket holder for a period. And my dad had access to certain tickets. And it was my most local club, I suppose. Um, so I just remember trips to there occasionally or, or whenever I could go. You know, they had really strong teams at that time. I remember that you know, right around the time they had a European Cup run and played Bayern Munich. Um, so, you know, Norwich was a thriving football club at, at that stage. And I remember watching players like Robert Fleck and Dale Gordon. Um, who else was there? Ian Crook. Chris Sutton there when he was a young player breaking into the team, Brian Gunn in goal. So that, that type of era. And it was a, it was a great time to watch Norwich, really. Mm-hmm. So looking at your career, when did you realise that you had some talent for the game, that this could be something that you could do as a job? I probably felt that around 14, 15 was probably the time that I actually thought, you know, this could be something that I'll go into after school. Um, I'd been in and around the academy system back then, which was very different to now. It wasn't as, as, as organised and it wasn't as frequent, but I'd, I'd spent time at, at Norwich Academy and Ipswich Academy, but had, had got released um, from both of those or almost not, not pursued in order to wanting to sign a, a schoolboy form, which you could at 14. So um, Luton kind of were aware of me and offered me to go on trial over there and I signed a schoolboy form for them at 14 which meant a fair bit of traveling from from Dis to, to Luton but you know I had a I had a very strong uh, family um, almost support uh, from my parents to be able to to get me to certain games at the weekend and I would head over to Luton during the, the half terms holidays whenever I could really and go and spend time there and and, and that was the first time, probably from 14, 15, that I thought that I could really actually, you know, turn this into a career. Mm-hmm. And it was that Luton that you were spotted by Arsenal. So how did that move come about? That came about just from, from playing. We had a great run in the FA Youth Cup in my first, actually it would have probably been my second year YTS. Um, we got to the, the, the quarterfinals and lost to a Leeds uh, youth team, which consisted of Harry Kuehl, Jonathan Woodgate, Paul Robinson. Uh, McPhail, uh, who else was in that team? A couple of other players that went on to to play at a really high level. So it, it, it was a strong it was a strong team, and we only just lost out. That's how good our youth team was, and how good the production line was at Luton. It had a great, and still has a great uh, record for for producing talent and, and players. So um, you know that that that's almost how, how it came about, and. I ended up over there as, as a young sixteen-year-old uh, left school and, and went went over to develop and straight into the youth team. So when did you find out that you were first heading to Arsenal? Because that's a that's a big move for a young man. Yeah, it, it was, and I'd, 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 we'd had we'd had a good run in the, in the FA Youth Cup, and I think that put me on the radar. To be honest, um, I was regularly playing in the reserves back then, which was similar to the under twenty threes now, but probably more senior. You got a lot more senior pros and, and older players playing in, in, in that league. So that, again, was a real challenge as a 16, 17-year-old to cope with that. 
Um, and I could always play with the ball. I think it was my my passing and 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 heading ability. I think which which stood out in those matches uh, enough for for Steve Rowley and Arsenal scout to be watching me for quite a long period of time in and around those games. I'd only made one appearance for Luton first team, mm. uh, which which is not a lot. And they saw the the, the almost the, the future potential in me and decided to to buy me at eighteen. And you were very highly rated at the time and an England age-grade international. But the defenders in front of you then, Tony Adams, Steve Bould, Martin Keown, how much were you learning off them at the start? Well, that's what it was. And that's what, that's what Arsene Wenger almost you know, explained to me when I met him at, at the training ground before I signed. Um, you know, I had an offer from Newcastle to go there, which probably would have maybe led to more game time and, and what have you. But the moment I went, to Arsenal and met the manager and spent some time around the training ground. It was, it was game over for me. I knew I wanted to be there, even though the, the mountain that I had to climb in order to get in the team at that at that age. But you know, I thought with with time, at least two two to three years, that that would have been possible for me. Um, and you're right, it was like a almost a, a, I was a student almost studying Martin Keown, Adams, Bold. Lee Dixon, Nigel Winterburn, who was, you know, the amount of experience there that I could could learn from was vast and it definitely helped me. But the one thing it didn't allow me was crucially playing time and you get to a certain age and you you just need to play. What was the point that it's, it stopped becoming, oh, this is great to be training with these sort of players to it sort of starting to become a little bit more, I don't know, frustrating. I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, not being able to get enough games. Yeah, definitely. You get to an age and I think there, there was two reasons why I, I didn't succeed. And I, I call it I didn't succeed at Arsenal because I don't believe that, that I did. Um, and that, that would have been, I didn't understand how, what it was to, to behave and, and, and to be as professional and train and to apply myself in, in a world-class manner every day. At, at the age of 21, I, I didn't understand what that picture was. I couldn't implement that well enough. Um, and secondly, I had a terrible run of injuries, which just every time I, I had that glimmer of breaking through, I was pulled back again by not just slight injuries, major injuries from, you know, a ruptured ACL uh, and a broken leg, but both times when I was getting game time in the first team. So, you know, opportunities are few and far between at that club, in that position, at that moment in time anyway, but to add two major injuries to the, to the, to the mountain really um, didn't help me. So, uh, you know, that those reasons alone were probably why I didn't get as much game time. And by the age of 23, I really felt I needed to move on to, to kind of kickstart my career, to be honest. Playing under Arsene Wenger, what was his biggest strength? Do you think the, the club misses him now? He was almost very, um, I'd probably describe him as, as almost like a, like a spiritual manager. It sounds weird, but he, he had an unbelievable knack of almost gauging people. And would would allow people to almost you know that their creative talent to just shine through, and he would just provide an environment and try and let it happen. Which, when you got the right combination, was just incredibly powerful. Um, it it it's it's it struggles a bit when you haven't quite got the right combination of player, and then I think it can be it can go the other way. But but the players that he recruited and the, the nucleus that he, he came into that club were just almost a match made in heaven. Um, and he had exactly the right almost temperament and, and a mind frame to be able to nurture that and allow it to, 
to almost organically play together and it was just a, a great thing to to be part of and that that for me was his his real strength along with his back then was was his forward thinking training methods uh, lifestyle all these things that he implemented at the club were 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 groundbreaking at the time it was you know he was leading leading the the charge in in English football in terms of that type of behaviour and and training system. Before we move on from Arsenal, I remember once you left, there was a lot of, I guess, media speculation that you you could go back there. I think there was always a possibility of what's the answer to the centre-back problem? Matt Upson could come back. Was there ever a possibility? Possibly. Possibly. When when I was coming to the end of my time at West Ham, but I don't think it's something that Arsene Wenger does particularly often. I think he's done it for a couple of players, um, but but it just it, it it was never to be. And you know, n- not not playing more for that club is 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 something that I say I say a regret is something that I would obviously have loved to have, have done more. But in hindsight, the the failures that I had there as a player and and the reasons why I failed and have to go away and then had to forge a different avenue actually made me better and made me stronger as a player and, and, and definitely as a once I've retired as an insight of how to get the best out of myself because I got really challenged in that way and it wasn't it wasn't easy so I, I think from that point of view it, it benefited me in the long run. You made that permanent move to Birmingham and it paid off because it wasn't that long until you made your England debut yeah so that was a, obviously like a, a big goal for you and like did you sort of think when that call up came that you know you, you definitely made the right decision definitely it, 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 I had to do it I had to step away because you know Arsene Wenger had probably lost a little bit of trust in me not, not as a player and I don't think he ever lost that but just in my ability to stay fit and be able to, to perform for him I just I just wasn't able to do it at Arsenal so I, I had to step away and the opportunity came at Birmingham who were in a relegation battle at the time and I remember actually going to watch them play Arsenal in January um, when the interest was there. I, I drove up and sat at the back of the stand and watched the game. And Arsenal won the game comfortably. But the, the atmosphere at St Andrews and the fight that, that, that the Birmingham City team had was attractive. And it, it had a real buzz about it at the time, Birmingham. Um, and and I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, my four and a half years there. It was, it was a great time. The club was on a real high. We had some brilliant characters in the in the dressing room, um, and it was a totally different requirement. And I had to grow up. I had to. What I'd always wanted was to be relied upon, be given a shirt. You're going to play every week as long as you're fit and you're performing. And, and it was up to me, and that's all I wanted. And, and Steve Bruce gave me that. Can you remember that feeling when you got that first England call up? Yeah, I can. I can. It was pretty instant from uh, signing for Birmingham and playing a few games. Um, it was obviously a, a massive moment for me. I remember walking into the the, the, the for lunch on the on the first meeting. At, I think it was at Sopwell House. I, I met up for the first game, um, and very nervous, very little bit on edge, not quite knowing what to expect. I've been involved in the in the under 18s and under 21 setup with England, which does help you, you know, it, it accustoms you to what the process is. Um, but it's nothing like being called up for the senior squad and, and realizing what that was. And it was a match away at, in uh, South Africa uh, for the first time, I think on South African soil, possibly that, that England played in. And that's where I made my debut. And it was a, it was a great experience, brilliant pros from 
David Beckham to Gareth Southgate, who I made my debut with in that game. Um, and yeah, it, it was just a brilliant experience, something I'll never forget. We're going to come back to England a little bit later. I'm going to skip quite far ahead um, to, to Brighton. You obviously spent time at Birmingham, West Ham, you went to Stoke, but then that was when you got your initial loan to Brighton. When did you first yeah. hear about that move and, and were you interested? Did you know a lot about Brighton? Um, I, had, I knew a bit about Brighton um, because the club was, was growing and it was in that real uh, development stage. And the new stadium uh, hadn't been around long. The training ground hadn't been finished, so we were still training over at the university uh, complex. But I remember the, the, my agent calling me. Um, I was looking to get out of Stoke because... I was coming to the final six months. We'd, we didn't have European football at Stoke. The season before, we'd had a, a Europa League campaign and I'd get quite a lot of games, but I was finding myself on the sidelines quite a lot. And Tony Pulis had his really recognised back four of Hooth and Shawcross and, and it had been incredibly successful in their style of play as well. So, you know, I, I really wanted a fresh challenge and that opportunity came up. Mm. And... Knowing the style is what attracted me. You know, Gus Poyet was playing some really good football. And, and I, like I said, I loved playing with the ball. I thought it was a, a, something that I could always do, was comfortable with the ball to pass out and play out. And uh, that's what really attracted me to Brighton. The squad that you joined, it was during Wayne Bridges' spell there. So you yeah. known him from playing for England. Did you have a word with him first? I don't think I did. No, I didn't. I drove down. It was late one evening, went to the Amex. Um, met Gus, had a good chat about the style of play. Mainly, we just spoke about football really um, for quite a while. It was a great meeting, um, and that was it. I was more than happy to sign and play. And you know, but we—I forget where we were in the table at that point. I think it was we were in striking distance of the playoffs because we made the playoffs, but we were way off to be honest. But there was probably a group of about ten to twelve teams that were threatening the Brighton were probably 11th or something like that in the championship. Um, and we went on a brilliant run uh, to make the playoffs at the end of that season. Yeah. You've talked about that. This is the point where still training at the university. What was it generally like at the club when you got down there in terms of the setup, the ambition, um, the characters in the dressing room? It, it was great because it had a really good mixture of players that had been affiliated to the club from the lower leagues or the league, league one level. Um, maybe beyond that, to be honest, um, real, you know, Brighton people, people like Adam Alab, you know, who, who had who'd been at the club for many years. Um, and then there was a different influx of players like Thomas Cusack, Wayne Bridge had come in, Vicente, you know, real players that had played at a high level. Um, so it was, a, it was a good blend dressing room and the club had a brilliant stadium, but it wasn't getting ahead of itself. So it still had a, I used the word lower level uh, feel. It almost wasn't, it, it had a bit of a gritty feel about it, which I think helped. Um, we were at the, at the university. It wasn't all polished and everything was pristine. So, you know, it had a real element about the, just the core football. And that's, that's what a lot of people were there for. And, and the style of play, like I've mentioned before, was, was really attractive. Players like David Lopez, Andrea Orlandi, Liam Bridcut. Um, were just very, very comfortable with the ball and everyone had to be. You know, if you weren't, you struggled to get in, in Gus Poyet's team. That was his main belief about controlling matches, having the ball, playing out every situation. 
Um, so, so, so being there and, and doing it in, in that environment at, at the university, um, training, training pitches and, and, and training uh, facility, just, just all added to the experience. And because I've been at Luton and I, I'd, I'd worked my way up through that level, none of that phased me or bothered me at all. It was, it was actually really nice to, to almost be back in that environment. This is Football, the Albion and me with Richard Newman. As soon as it's safe to get back to the Amex, we can't wait to watch the Albion again in person. Until then, you can recreate at least some of that matchday experience by ordering from the award-winning Piglet's Pantry, official pie supplier to Brighton and Hove Albion. Visit piglet'spantry.co.uk where you'll find the full product range, including the SOS box, a selection of six best-selling pies and sausage rolls. And listeners to this podcast can get 10% off your order when you enter the code FOOTYALBIANME. That's all one word, FOOTYALBIANME at the checkout. Follow Football the Albion and me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. This was the year that Albion lost out to Palace in the playoffs, which led to Gus leaving. It's become quite a memorable semi-final tie that and not many are very well remembered, but it's because of the alleged uh, incident in the Palace dressing room, which we know about. Sort of no, it's all been cleared up since then. But did you have any idea that there was any kind of issue before that second leg? Yeah, I think I think we knew. I mean, they're, they're, it's it's Brighton Palace in a playoff semi. You know, it's always going to have a. It didn't need any more <laughs> drama added to it, really, did it? But we 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 got word that there was something. Obviously, word rumbles through, um, but it didn't really affect us in, in the game I, th- I think if I cast my mind back to the first leg of that game that that was the important we needed to win that match and we should have won that match I felt mm. um, I remember we had a chance I think it was Dean Hammond had a head of quite close range that uh, was straight at the goalkeeper he didn't know much about it it was like a reaction header but little moments like that where if that just goes in if we, you know we played really well in that, in that game away at Selhurst Park and I think I think that almost got more out of Palace in the second leg because they realised that they couldn't perform like that. We were going to beat them at home. And they turned up and they just had a little bit more firepower than us, I felt. They had a bit more, you know, they'd spent more money on, on the team. They had a bit more attacking threat. Um, and in the end, it, it, it shone through and we just didn't quite have enough to see it over the line. But I, feel, I felt, really felt the first leg was, 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 was the point where we needed to, to be at least a goal ahead. After the game, could you tell that Gus was leaving? No, not from what I remember. It was very down, but I don't actually remember feeling like like he he was possibly going to leave the club. I mean, it all started to unravel after that, obviously. Um, not not like the year after when Oscar Garcia came in straight after the loss at Derby and was you know dressed us and addressed us and he, he, I'm leaving. You know that was very right. he said that outright. Whereas it wasn't quite like that with Gus. It was a little bit open ended. A um, lot of lot of talk, a lot of unknowns, and you know it's it's not nice to finish the league season like that, especially after one that had ended you know relatively successful for the, successfully for the club. Um, so as players, we, we we were a little bit unsure of the future, but it wasn't you know set in stone. Are you in a weird situation at this point? Have you decided that you're going to? Are you in talks at this point to sign? No, permanently? no. So no. So what makes you decide to come down on that year-long contract then? Because I guess you won't have known Oscar Garcia. 
and so what's going through your mind at that point? You'd have to take a bit of a, a leap of faith. Yeah, I mean, I, I was weighing up options, and if I remember rightly, I didn't sign for Bright. I didn't fully come, and I didn't join the pre-season until midway through um, with Oscar Garcia because the club hadn't been particularly, you know, on the front foot in terms of renegotiating with me. And I think obviously they had their own issues going on of managerial, so they couldn't really do anything at that time. Um, and I felt the loan spell had gone very well, and 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 probably had had the managerial situation been more more stable, they would have. I'm sure we would have agreed terms right at the end of the, or even before the end of the season, and been been moving on our you know our happy ways into the next season. But it was very disjointed. I was I did a lot of training by myself, which I actually quite enjoyed at that age. I was able to know what my body needed. I was. 34, 35 years old. Um, so I suppose the club couldn't really act quickly, but I probably didn't sort out that, that contract well into pre-season. I went and met Oscar Garcia at, uh, at the Hilton Hotel in Croydon. No, sorry, Cobham. In, uh, at Cobham, I went and met him and we had an hour's conversation. And in terms of playing style, it was very, very similar to Gus, really, wasn't it? In, in terms of... He, he was a, from Barcelona, very much dominate possession. There were tweaks to how he wanted to play tactically, and he was very different as a person. You know, Gus was really out there and, you know, very almost quite overpowering at times in how he would, would run the session, whereas, whereas Oscar was a lot quieter and a lot more reserved in how he would be around the players and how he would communicate. Um, but all in all, it was still a very good option for me, and I, and I just I loved the club. I look back to where I enjoy playing football the most. Brighton is right up there with with you know some of the happiest eighteen months of my career. It was it was just a, a great club to be at. It was a lo lovely location, real lovely feel to the club, and and I'd enjoyed it. So I was at that stage in my career where enjoyment was probably a really high priority, and and I wanted to stay. In that season, you were named Player of the Year as Albion just missed out again in the playoffs. This time, though to Derby and that's the yeah. that ends up being your your last season obviously before you go to to Leicester um yeah so that's interesting that you said about Oscar Garcia saying that he was moving on literally as soon as you finished that that playoff tie yeah so with your contract ending have you just do you decide then that's the reason why you want to move on and Leicester obviously is an attractive op proposition because I don't know whether at that time in your career you're looking at as one last shot at the Premier League as well? It's, it's exactly that, to, to be honest. I mean, there was a couple of things. Um, obviously, I, I didn't really know which direction. Again, another end of the season, a managerial change at, at Brighton. Um, I was injured and I'd picked up an injury in a game away at Barnsley about four or five games before that. Maybe less than that. Yeah, probably f maybe four games before that Nottingham Forest game where we just squeaked into the playoffs. And I was playing with a split um, perineal tendon and uh, it'd been diagnosed as tendonitis. So I was just patching it up and playing, but I couldn't play the two semi-finals back to back. It just, and I look back now and I understand why, because I had a slightly crack, slight crack in the ankle and a, and a, and a split tendon, which was close to probably rupturing. Right. Um, so I couldn't play the second leg at Derby, uh, which was, we had so many players out at that point that the squad just wasn't thick enough to be able to cope. Um, so that, 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 that was a factor. Um, and also I would say it's one of the greatest achievements in my career to drop down to the championship at the age of 33 and play 18 months or two seasons there 
and then get back to the Premier League at the age of 35 is that's that that for me was a real feat and something that probably doesn't happen that often. So I think it was a testament to to how you know how well I felt and the shape I was in at, at 35 uh, to then get interest from a, a Premier League club, be it a newly promoted one, but. Um, and that was that was just something that I could go and do that was just too big a draw for me personally. Um, I didn't want to leave Brighton. I was very happy at the club and I would love to have stayed and continue to play for Brighton. But it was just that draw to being able to do that at 35 and to see where that led um, was something that I just couldn't turn down. Yeah. So I guess if, if, if you had been successful, if the club had been successful and got the Premier League, you probably you may have seen that go a bit differently and, and stayed with Brighton. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd have been, I, I was leaving was a very, very difficult decision for me because I enjoyed it so much. I, I really liked the people, the club. It was just a brilliant place for me to be. And, and in my heart, you know, I, I probably didn't really want to leave. But I think I would have regretted not turning down that opportunity to play in the Premier League again. And it was almost that that drove it. The, the unknown of where that might lead and to achieve that at 35 to go back to the Premier League was 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 big for me and, and it, it just tipped my decision making to to go to Leicester and, and be part of what that was. Yeah. So you're at Leicester and then you finished your career at MK Dons and you've since yep. embarked on what's been a pretty successful media career. Was that always the 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 aim rather than going into something like coaching or similar? Uh no, no. Yeah. Uh, co- coaching and something was was Initially on my mind, I went straight into the, my A license as soon as I finished playing. And I did I did the course the week after the season. Um, then went in, went into West Ham um, and worked with their under twenty threes for a year, eighteen months, alongside doing some some punditry work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, probably I took eighteen months, two years to really discover that. I probably wasn't ready to give up the the time and and the energy to go into coaching and management Um, and the the time demands what that was. And and I wanted to give my time open to do more things with my family, with my children um, and and be at home a lot more. So, you know, that, that was a big, big driver for me to to focus more on, on kind of co-commentary, which I do quite a lot of and punditry and media work, um, it's just far more flexible. And now I've thrown myself into it more. I really enjoy it and I'm developing it and trying to get better at it. Um, and it's something that, that, that works really well for me. So, yeah, initially it was coaching that I really wanted to do. Yeah. Before we wrap up the podcast with your five-a-side team and a few fun bits, just quickly about England, because you're a part of that squad that went to the 2010 World Cup. It was a strange tournament with the John yeah. Taylor press conference and everything like that. What was it genuinely like inside the camp? Yeah, but pretty much how it presented to the outside, to be honest. Um, it, 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 it was... For me, it was the, obviously the greatest achievement of my career personally to be involved in something like that around the, the, the quality of players that we have was just amazing for me on an, an achievement level. Um, and then to play a couple of games was absolutely superb. Um, but the experience probably wasn't what I'd pictured it. Uh, and that was largely to do with those, you know, almost the, the, the strange direction that, that we went in as a group after such a successful two-year qualifying campaign and everything was looking really good, the mood was good, the training application was through the roof and Fabio Capello really drove that and 
was very big on that. And then things changed and it, we ended up with that, that finals that we all saw. And yeah, it just, it just wasn't what, you know, maybe it could have been. Was it a happy place then inside the, the squad? Was it just, did it all feel a bit, did it feel like you're at, you know, a tournament which is meant to be the pinnacle of a player's career? I, I, th- I, did, I, I won't say it was unhappy because we had people there that, you know, you, you made it as good as, you made it happy because that's, that's your job. That's your, you know, you turn up with the right application, you behave appropriately off the pitch and you link, but it, it, it wasn't as pulling all in the same direction. And I think if you're going to have a successful tournament, and I think it's something that England, with Gareth Southgate at the moment, that's one been the one biggest success and change of what he's brought as a manager. He's addressed that, I feel. Um, and he's he's made the, the, the squad better just by making it more of a, a family and, and having people together. Whereas I think how it was managed and handled um, during that time, especially in South Africa, just created a little bit of divide and people going in different directions and you, you can't be successful at that level if, if the feeling around the camp is like that when you say going in different directions is that the players maybe not buying into what Fabio Capello wanted to do or, or Fabio Capello and his team sort of changing the you said things have changed so they sort of changing their approach a bit yeah I think that I think they changed their approach um, and I think they we, we then almost lost that style we had such a poor start to the tournament that you know, the, the USA game, then Algeria, the two draws, it almost put, put them on a real back foot. And then we were just reacting to everything. And I, and I just think that it's very difficult to have success when you, you, you almost got to have your, your method drilled in and this is what we're doing. And then a lot of things in, in, in how we were managed as a group started to change and cracks started to appear and, and, and what have you and it, it just it really impacted the tournament and you know as, as you can see the results and when we went out of the tournament speak for itself really mm. right so that brings us up to date we're now going to move on to our regular feature jumpers for goalposts it's just a bit of fun really opportunity for you to give a shout out to any players about how just how talented they were when 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 you were playing alongside them so i'm going to ask you to pick a five-a-side team made up of players you play with alongside your career so who would be your first pick? Is that a goalkeeper and five outfield or goalkeeper and four? Five aside, but you don't even need a goalkeeper if you want. You can have a rush goalie. Oh, rush keeper. Right. That, well, that, that changes things. That <laughs> changes things a little bit. Um, I, I, I've thought about this a lot recently and I think it's very difficult for me to, for, to pick anyone that, that wasn't in that Arsenal team or in and around that Arsenal team between 98 to 2002. It was just absolutely brilliant. So, I'm going to go with the goalkeeper and I'm going to have David Seaman in goal. Just so secure, reliable, great to play in front of. Um, Tony Adams is, is my centre-back with Robert Pires and Mark Overmars on the flanks. Patrick Vieira in the middle with Thierry Henry up front. Very good. That's, um, a pretty good. that's a pretty good team, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. If, if, if I had to, with the five, I'd just put Tony Adams as rush goalkeeper. That'd be, he'd do the job in there. Yeah, that, 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 that's my pick of a five-a-side who I've played with. Any um, honourable mentions for anyone from our other clubs throughout your career? Loads. Yeah. Loads. I could pick, honestly, it's so hard. From England, you know, people like Wayne Rooney, the form he was in when I played with him just prior to the World Cup, he was absolutely outstanding. Um, to players like Christoph Duggery at Birmingham, who just the impact he had. Kenny Cunningham, I played with so much, so reliable, very understated mm. type player. 
Um, there's so many. Sol Campbell, Martin Keown, absolutely brilliant. Mm. Uh, you know, great centre back partner to play with. So it, it's almost impossible to pick. It's almost almost impossible to pick, but you yeah. have to pick someone. So that's what I'm going for. Yeah, and finally, then on that, if you could pick one player from Albion during from your time there, who would make that subs bench? That's a tough one as well. I would have to say, out of the importance to what he brought to the team when I was playing at Brighton was Leonardo Ojoa. Mm-hmm. I would say he he really did bring a lot to that. In the time I was there, he worked tirelessly and he tried, played every minute and he was so important to how we played as a hold-up man, as a goal scorer. He was the physical element of the leading the line brilliantly. So I'd have to pick him. Uh, next one you're taking over match of the day for one episode only they've told you they can run extended highlights of one game from your time yep. with the Albion. which one is it going to be i there's three games that popped to mind one would be that that almost famous game at nottingham forest where we hmm. last kick of the game scored to, to go into the playoffs that was a brilliant uh, game and a, and a great moment um, the other one would be the win away at leicester which i think was four 4-1 maybe when we beat Leicester and won the title we played brilliantly that night away um, at the King Power but I think the one that really stands out is when we beat uh, Crystal Palace we beat Crystal Palace at home uh, which was which the, the, the Brighton Palace derby in, in the league and it was a really wet day and I just I just remember us playing so well in that game I think it was 3-0 David Lopez scored a, a brilliant free kick there was some yeah. superb goals and attacking action and we were just cutting Crystal Palace wide open from time to time. It could have been more, um, but but we played superbly in that game. And I think that's probably the the one most entertaining game that, that I would say would would want to watch the full or, or, the, or the highlight version of. Yeah, I remember that game very well. Yeah. It was a, it was all like I think it was a midday kickoff on a Sunday afternoon. That's right. So it's a strange that's kind of right. time to play that that well as well. And um, if if you yes. influence one thing about the game today, so you can wave the magic wand and just change it, what would it be? Um, it may be, and this might be quite controversial. It probably have to be to remove the AR completely. There you go. Yeah, I think you would. I think you'd have to remove it completely. Mm-hmm. It would be done. Mm-hmm. And and I, I I just enjoyed how football was. I enjoyed watching football without it. Um, and I think that eventually things level out. Yeah. And and even the mistakes with VAR will have to level out. You know, it's not it's not foolproof either either. It's still, it's still down to a human judgment and human element. So I, I think that would probably be the one change, big change that, that I would make. Quick one-minute shootout there, quick-fire questions, not all about football, so I'll fire them at you. You give me your first response. And I don't know whether you've been to the first two stadia here, but Goldstone, with Dean or Amex? Amex. Tea or coffee? Coffee. In the same season, would you rather win the FA Cup or avoid top-flight relegation? You can't have both. Win the FA Cup. Okay. Book or film? Film. With that in mind, then, what would be your recommended film? Joker. Good film. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, board game cheat or do you play by the rules? Play by the rules. <laughs> if you could play Always. one... <laughs> if you could play one other professional sport, what would it be? Golf. Yeah? Are you a good golfer? Yeah. Okay. Okay. But I just look at that as a sporting profession and think, that's lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seaside yeah. or the South Downs for you? South Downs. Mm-hmm. Old Wembley or New Wembley? New Wembley. What's your guilty pleasure? 
probably guilty pleasure would have to be getting a good box set and just watching it for time slipping away and not you know it could be two o'clock in the morning and you, you, you're clicking the next episode yeah. um, and would you rather travel the world or laze on the world's most idyllic beach beach yeah okay yeah and, and tell us something about you which a lot of people may not know i'd say this more recent or definitely since retirement i am a relatively keen gardener and yeah. it's something that i really enjoy and spend a fair bit of time doing now so yeah yeah, it's something that, uh, that I've really got stuck into. Yeah. Finally, just to wrap up on uh, Albion, we've obviously talked about it right at the start of this podcast, but looking further ahead, what would you say is the, the long-term realistic potential that Albion could sort of aim for? I think that, you know, it's established, the Albion established them, themselves as a, as a regular Premier League competitive team is, is definitely a... a, a a goal that I'm sure the club has and, and is achievable and with the right appointments, the right recruitment. Um, you know, I'm so impressed with the way the club has structured itself from the time I was there, you know, not getting ahead of itself, the foundations that it's laid, you know, it, it, it has the capabilities of, of doing that. And I think long-term, you know, to hopefully to see Brighton in the Premier League and competing at that level and, in it and, and growing is something that we, we'll see in the future. And lastly, do you have a message for the Albion fans? Um, my message would, would be just just to stick with it this season and, and to keep supporting the club the way they have been. You know, I think they they must be relatively happy with with the, the way the team are playing. Uh, and I think just be patient. The club doesn't rush these things, and and with time, hopefully, like I say, it will strengthen and strengthen and, and and become more and more competitive. But I would just say, be patient. Matt, it's been great to hear about your memories at Albion and at Arsenal and England and beyond as well. Thanks so much for coming on Football, the Albion and me. No problem. My pleasure. Thanks again to Matt for his time. That's about it for this week's podcast. If you haven't already, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word on social media. It really does make a huge difference. Thanks for listening.